You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. When John asked me to do wisdom, I realized I have never read through the book of Proverbs. Uh, I thought, John caught me doing that. And here's the reason why. It's because I start reading the book of Proverbs and I stop. And I go, oh, I don't know what... Something gets me thinking, and, and it's just, and there's a million of those sort of ideas and concepts going on in Proverbs. So, unlike reading a story or a narrative or a poem or poetry or a psalm, I get, I, I, I get going, and I stop. And so, I've never ever just sat down and read through the book of Proverbs. So, this is a good exercise for me to try to do that. So, I'm going to present a little bit differently than than John, because uh, part of that issue is that when he puts up all the proverbs that he's going to cover during the sermon, I feel like I'm trying to take a drink of water from a fire hose. And it's like, well, I, I got to stop and think. I, gotta, I, I can't think that fast, because each proverb gives me pause and opportunity to think, well, what does that mean? How, what, who said that? Is that so the same kind of reason that I'm going to give or excuse for not reading through the book of Proverbs is the same one that I would give for the way I'm going to do this. So I'm going to take the Proverbs that are part of our text here today and weave them in so that I can digest them one at a time. Maybe you can digest them all at once. I know John can. He's a professor and all that kind of thing. Uh, but I am not, so I'm going to weave them in. So you can notice a different format, different way in which the Proverbs are presented. But you're going to notice that they're the same word of the Lord. And that's really, that's really key. It's really been a great exercise for me to go through the wisdom uh, of the Proverbs because it's stuff that just makes sense. And their insight and their knowledge of humanity and spirit are phenomenal. And here's what we'll do today as we walk through this together and finally get on with the sermon and not let go of the introductory material is talk about the troubled spirit of, that the Proverbs kind of address. And I'm going to really see it as differently, not a troubled spirit so much, but the unsatisfied hunger of isolation. There's something that happens when we get isolated. <clears throat> Take a look at in culture. So, it's, so if you're in society or within a, within a culture, and you break laws and misbehave, they separate you from that and put you in jail. And so you are separated from culture and from family and from friends and are placed in jail. If you misbehave or are uh, a problem in jail or prison, they put you in isolation, solitary. So... Solitary and isolation are the ultimate punishments for wrongdoing, for evil. They are the sort of universal way in which humanity suffers. Isolation is essentially what we're going to talk about in the first part of this message, the unsatisfied hunger of isolation. And what you're going to see, as I discovered in this message here and in my studies, is that it's universal across time and space. It is the nature of our nature to be hungry for something more, like we're missing it. I didn't want to do the Joni Mitchell song. That just seemed inappropriate. Is that all there is? So 
my opening question for you, sort of the opening salvo, is for what do you hunger? How is that hunger driving you? Is the hunger that you feel and that you have easily addressed with food or risk-taking or medication or relationships or sex or fun or money? Do those things satisfy you? Do you get driven to them? Even if they don't satisfy you, do you continuously get caught in the loop of trying to be satisfied with those things and and more. What I've discovered in my life is that it's always been true, is that my first reflex, my first thought, my first action, my first activity is to seek satisfaction for my hungers in one of those areas. And as a result, I get that hunger satisfied for a little bit. And people will tell you that things like drugs and sex and money and shopping and credit cards don't supply you satisfaction. They do for a little bit. And what is the next thing that you want to do is satisfy that hunger because it dissipates. Mary Louise and I were just talking this week. We found an, we're always looking for a healthy chip. Now, that's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? You know, a healthy chip. So we buy chips with brown rice in them and satisfy our uh, healthy desires phenomena, right? And he's, we tell you, oh, these are good. And I was reminded of a documentary I saw. There is a science in salty, sweet, crisp balancing. That there are scientists who sit around a table who look at molecules who are dressed in white uh, coats who are trying to figure out how to get me to eat this chip because it's going to have just the right amount of salt, just the right amount of sugar, just the right amount of crisp. I'm going to put it in my mouth and I go, oh, I want more, <laughs> of course. That's the nature of the hunger that exists, is that there are forces that want us to want more. We're going to compare and contrast that to wisdom satiation from a tree of life and unfold that more. There is, just by way of background, there are three mentions, three books mention the tree of life. Genesis, Revelation, and Proverbs. Huh, did you know that? I didn't know that. So I thought the tree of life might be found throughout the Old and New Testament, and it's not, just in those three places. What is it about the tree of life? The image that comes to mind right now is mangoes. <laughs> right? Mangoes are now in season. And uh, for those of you who are mango lovers, we have, uh, I have to physically refrain Mary Louise from going across our neighbors and plucking mangoes from their tree. They're hanging ripe. The mango tree, if you pluck that mango, it ceases to be a part of the tree. And if you don't bite into the juicy deliciousness right away, just let it alone, it will continue to rot. So not only is it not a part of the tree, it's not connected to the other mangoes, which are sharing its fruit and nectar, its sweetness, its delight. It's now disconnected from the tree, from other mangoes, and will sit there and rot, if not deliciously eaten or turned into mango salsa. Ask Mary Louise about that later. 
what the Proverbs are telling us is that left on our own, we hunger, wither, and fade and die because we have an unsatisfied, unsatisfiable hunger that just won't go away. But the world is offering us just the right combination of crispy, sweet, and salty to keep wanting more, to be distracted, to be delighted, to be satisfied for a moment until we want more. So the first proverb is from Proverbs 14.10. Each heart knows its own bitterness. No one else can share its joy. So essentially, each person bears their own angst or sorrow. It's really what today we would identify as an existential issue, is that there's a sense in which all of us are alone, separated from the rest of the tree, from the rest of the community, from the rest of the crop. There's a part of us that is untouchable. In my studies as a marriage and family therapist, there's a whole training and a whole searching that um, I've been encouraged to do to help couples uncover their own secrets. Are you aware that secrets inside of marriage are not only powerful and destructive, but universal? All of us, it is safe to say, and what I have been taught, have secrets that we haven't shared with our spouses. Could be driven by shame, could be driven by history, could be driven by fear. If that is true, if that is true for you and it is true for me, then even those closest to us aren't fully understanding and fully revealed about who we are. And you could kind of sense that if you've been married for a while, because you grow and in that marriage you change and are always discovering and rediscovering characteristics and traits and faults and foibles of your partner. If you've been through divorce, you know that that can be detrimental and those can rise to levels of division, hurt, and pain and develop their own secrets. All that kind of ran through my mind. That's why I can't read the book of Proverbs very quickly. It says, Each heart knows its own bitterness. And we spend weeks and years and all time of a lifetime trying to get to understand the bitterness, the difficulties, the sorrows, the hurts, the pains, the mark that they've left, the struggles that are there, even on the people that are closest to us, much less family and friends. It's the nature of our nature. We've been plucked from the tree. And now we're separate from its juices and its nectar. Hmm. This is true in what I, from St. Francis of Assisi, who I don't know if that's really a picture of him or not, but that's from the 13th century. When the soul is troubled, lonely, and darkened, then it turns easily to the outer comfort and to the empty enjoyments of the world. From the 13th century, it strikes me that how true that could be today, how true that is today, how true the whole market of uh, phones and games and pursuits are all constantly driving us to the outer, the empty enjoyments and the outer comforts. Huh. True in the 13th century, true today. I love this one. Here's a cheery thought. We are born alone. We live alone. We die alone. 
What's that? That's pretty grim. Pretty grim, yeah. I thought the same thing. Is that I could just hear Orson Welles, right, kind of in his raspy sort of bass voice. It is grim. As I was reading it, as I was pulling this together, I thought, wow, I just can't wait to deliver this news to the people of Thrive. <laughs> They're going to take me off the bench and put me back in, out of the dugout. The part of the reality and the truth is that there's a sense in which that's true. If even our spouses, our deepest, our closest friends, and our one most delighted partners and trusted spouses don't really know us, there's a sense of being alone. There's a sense of walking outside of the garden and being plucked in just like, ugh, ugh, by ourselves. Not to worry, it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> So it's really all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. So this is the study of something called phenomenology. And I, I, this is one of my favorite quotes from the study of phenomenology. Consciousness is known through the world, and at the same time, the world is known through consciousness. Now, let pause on that one for a little bit. <laughs> it's like, what is he talking about? And I think my point is that even with our own thoughts and minds, as we try to get out of our grim, reaping world, we get caught in our own loops, in our own cycles. We can't escape our own consciousness. We can't escape our own perceptions. We can't escape our own thoughts and feelings. Imagine with me for a second that you were to uh, be standing on a corner, and there was a fender bender right here on 41, and what's the name of this street here? Uh, Estero Boulevard. And a police officer interviewed four different people standing on each corner and asked, what did you see? How many different stories are you going to get about what happened? Four. four. The point of that story and parable is the study of phenomenology, is that we don't have an eternal, we don't have a universal perspective. We have our own, only our own perceptions, and we're caught up in it. All a person's ways seem pure to them. I think I did a pretty good job with this sermon. But you're going to go home and go, oh, can you believe that sermon sucked? Carl just read it. It's very grim. You know. Phenomenologically speaking, say that really fast, phenomenologically speaking, is that we're caught in a loop that is our own perceptions. We need an external source, but we don't naturally seek one. Wow. This is evidenced all over Scripture. This is what Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him, talking about Saul, King Saul, who is a very strapping, big, beautiful young man. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks an outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You can see the Lord gives us a universal perspective we don't have, which is why we need to come together to plug back into the tree. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Don't rush me. <laughs> this next from 1814, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. So we can get through illness and disease. The only true disability is a crushed spirit. 
Amy Mullins. I didn't know who Amy Mullins was before I started reading the, uh, doing the research. She's, a, she's now 47 years old, still a master athlete, who's a speaker and an author and an incredible runner, even though she said both legs amputated below the knee and runs on those sort of springs. Have you seen those oh, yeah. kind of thing? And wins races. She has overcome her disease and her illness and her sickness, but is the first to tell you that you have but a crushed spirit. I know somebody right now in our family to whom we're ministering to and loving who's struggling with depression. Illness is one thing. The crushed spirit of depression is a totally different phenomenon. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? Talk about grim. It gets worse, right? Because when our spirits are crushed, there seems to be no place left to go, nothing left to do. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. I found this image. I thought, that's perfect. How many times do you know? How many, maybe perhaps it says, oh, well, you came to church this morning putting on a smile, but really struggling and really suffering, really hurting with pain. Even in laughter, the heart may feel pain and rejoice remained in grief. It just reminded me of it so many times in my ministry when I have visited with people who are lost loved ones, and maybe you've been there too, maybe this has happened to you, where you're in conversation and it'll bring tears and grief and moaning, and then a memory will come up and it'll bring laughter, and the laughter will subside and just melt right back into tears. Proverbs 14, 13, even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. This is kind of where the sermon takes a little bit of an upturn. You ready for that? Each person must decide to go around or through. Sort of a personal pivotal moment from Proverbs 28, 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, <laughs> but the righteous are as bold as a lion. This one gave me pause. I remembered a Robert Frost poem that said, well, there's two different ways people have quoted it, so I'm not sure which one is right. The best way out is through. The way I like and the way I've repeated it most often is the only way out is through. So what we find is that faced with a lot of this darkness, this grimness, this struggle, this sorrow, this pain, the opportunity that we have is to turn and run from it, to flee to all those things I would mentioned earlier, and that's a temptation not only you and I have, it's a temptation you and I follow as we pursue. All those things mentioned through money and sex and drugs and rock and roll capture us and we pursue and run to them looking for just the right Christmas, looking for the perfect chip that doesn't exist. <laughs> or go through it face the pain, surrender, and move through it. The wicked flee when no one pursues. The wicked are always looking for the best chip and to fill the emptiness of their tanks. But God calls us to turn and walk through it. The righteous are as bold as a lion. The first calling that I got here this morning is that the struggles, the difficulties, the pain, the secrets, the fears that are in your heart and mine, 
Lord calls on us to turn and face him and move through it. Opportunities for confession, opportunities for revelation, opportunities for surrender. Can you do that? Are you ready to surrender first to your God and say, wherever you want me to go, however you want me to get there, whatever lies ahead, I will trust you? Or do you, as you say, as you think those words, do you automatically go, as long as, but only, and if, the wicked flee, our God calls us to turn and face and walk through. Anxiety from Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. I chose this picture because I can't tell whether she's anxious or glad. What's your vote? <laughs> it's hard to tell. <laughs> she looks like she's been hit by one of those AEDs. <laughs> a good word makes him glad. What I like about this proverb is that it begins to point us outward. Every proverb that we've taken a look at here helps us understand the struggles within the battles, the darkness, the grimness, the failures, the fears, the losses. And I like that because the proverbs say, hey, these are real. This isn't fake religion. This isn't feel good. It's like these existential, dark and deep difficulties are true, and we all struggle with them. We all have our secrets. We all chase after the crispness of life and the brown rice chips. But God says, no, a good word makes him glad. Something which comes from outside of us, something which intervenes inside of my cycle of consciousness that's caught up with my own perceptions. A thing that comes to me from outside of Carl and enters my life and world. That's why the good word, euangelion, came to mind. Evangelion is what was preached in the New Testament. It's what the book of Acts is all about. It's preaching the good news. I need good news to come from outside of me because I can't generate it inside. It has to be external. That's why we're going to have communion. And bread and wine, body and blood, are going to intervene in our worlds and in our consciousness, in our lives, in our grim reaper cycles, in our pursuits of brown rice, perfect salt, sugar, and sweet. And, and crisp, and come to us with real truth, real love, real hope that intervenes and calls us in. Each person is invited back to shalom, or eat from a tree of life, seeking satiation. I think one of the things I look forward to most in eternity is that I will be satisfied. <laughs> I will stop pursuing the latest thing, the most phenomena. From Proverbs 13.25, the righteous eat to their hearts content, but the stomach of the wicked goes hungry. You can never get enough of the sweets, right? Sweets fill you up, and that chocolate bar that tastes so good leaves you unsatisfied and wanting more. But the fullness that comes with bread and wine, body and love from outside of ourselves, a good word that comes from God that says, I have loved you from eternity and have sought you and looked for you. That good word is what fills us up, gives us satiation. And once again, 
in the book of Proverbs. This is the only book outside of the first and the last books of the Bible that speak of the satiation that comes from the tree of life. It's about being satisfied and no longer wanting and striving and seeking and lying and being a secret. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 15, 4. I thought, oh, how true is that? This is from Jesus and it's from Matthew chapter 11. And it's from the, uh, an interpretation called the message, which is not, it's more of an interpretation, not a translation per se. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, Jesus says. Get away with me and I'll, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. This is my favorite phrase in this whole text. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I want to learn them. I want to live them. I want to be in a rhythm that's God's cadence. And by walking with him, be satisfied and delighted along the road. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from any of the chips I can get off the shelf. It comes from outside of me in bread and wine, body and blood, the good news of baptism, the opportunity that I have to walk and talk and live with Jesus. And I think ultimately that's what eternity is going to be. Not only some blissful uh, arrival, but an absolute satiation like, ah, this is what it means to be satisfied. You know that moment that comes when you don't eat too much and you haven't eaten too little, and you push back from the table and you finish that little bit of wine that's left at the bottom of the cup, and you pull back and you're with family and friends that last for just a moment. But there it is, right there, that sense of, ah, that was good. Imagine that feeling, which quickly goes away because the kids interfere and because somebody recalls a past or you decide to dip into one more piece of pie. Imagine that satiated, full, feeling forever it doesn't come from within the proverbs point us out jesus calls us out to the unforced rhythms of grace hope deferred makes the heart sick but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life hope deferred is that what the purpose of the world is is to keep us on line to keep us on like there are not only people who are studying salty, sweet, and Christmas and keeping us going, I've also learned that there are people who study just how to keep my grandkids interested in winning just enough and scoring just enough points so that they keep clicking, they keep looking for the next level, they keep seeking the next victory, they keep trying to conquer the next monster. But their point is that they want to keep a, a hope deferred. They can do better than that. They can rescue the princess. Does anybody rescue the princess anymore? Or am I dating myself again? Hope deferred is the point and the purpose of the world. But a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. A life with God in eternity, and it begins right now as an opportunity to listen to his good word of grace and peace and love and f be called into his presence, to walk with him in an unforced rhythm of grace that satisfies the soul, to have a longing fulfilled, to eat again of the tree of life, 
be connected to all those who are part of it. This isn't in the Proverbs and it's not in the text, but it just reminded me as I studied like this of the purpose and the nature and the etiology, the origin of the word shalom. Bill, it's what I would wish you as you go. It's what I wish each other as we depart. Shalom. Shalom is the way in, the, in Hebrew and the way our Jewish friends greet and share with one another. At a superficial level means peace to you, but far more than that, shalom means wholeness, completeness, connection. I think I understand, having gone through these Proverbs, the grim nature of life and the way in which our hearts yearn for the Christmas of this world, how it sends us down the drain and we disconnect and get disconnected from ourselves and our secrets to a place of shalom that's offered in bread and wine, body and blood, hopefulness, fellow saints that are walking together, seeking, looking, anticipating, living unforced rhythms of grace, do we find perfect connectedness, peace and joy in eternity. Shalom to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And I turn it back to you. Let's go to God in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we take a look at the grimness of walking and being within our own world and caught in the cycle of our own consciousness, our own thoughts, perceptions. We turn to you this day in a surrendered way to go through the forest and the difficulties, the sorrows, the pains, not knowing how they will unfold, not knowing how they will turn out, but trusting that you already know and have called us to walk with you in an unforced rhythm of grace and joy. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to prepare our hearts for bread and wine, body and blood, to receive from you the gift of life and love and joy and be once again connected to the tree of life and each other and one another and most of all, solely all, you. For that gift, for that hope, for that light, for that purpose, we've come before you thankful in Jesus' name. Amen.